O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of the glory of His kingdom for ever and ever. Amen. Good morning, Mishpacha. Welcome to the Daily Audio Torah. I'm Laura Densmore, your host, and I'm so glad you're joining in with me today. It's hard to believe that we're almost finished with reading through the entire Bible in one year. We will begin a new Torah reading cycle the week of September the 26th, when we begin Breshit in Genesis, which means in the beginning. This will be the third year of reading through the entire Bible in one year with Daily Audio Torah. I hope you will continue and finish the journey, reach to the top of the mountain and then take a look at the amazing view of all the ground that we have covered, the landscape of the Living Bible. Now let's continue our journey through the entire Bible in one year. This week we are reading from the New Living Translation for the Hebrew Scriptures and also for the Brit Hadashah. Today we continue the Torah portion, Shaftim, and it means Judges. Deuteronomy 17, 8-18, 8-8 Suppose a case arises in a local court that is too hard for you to decide. For instance, whether someone is guilty of murder, or only of manslaughter, or a difficult lawsuit or a case involving different kinds of assault. Take such legal cases to the place the Lord your God will choose, and present them to the Levitical priests or the judge on duty at that time. They will hear the case and declare the verdict. You must carry out the verdict they announce and the sentence they prescribe at the place the Lord chooses. You must do exactly what they say. After they have interpreted the law, the Torah, and declared their verdict, the sentence they impose must be fully executed. Do not modify it in any way. Anyone arrogant enough to reject the verdict of the judge or of the high priest who represents the Lord your God must die. In this way you will purge the evil from Israel. Then everyone else will hear about it and be afraid to act so arrogantly. You are about to enter the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you take it over and settle there, you may think, we should select a king to rule over us like the other nations around us. If this happens, be sure to select as king the man whom the Lord your God chooses. 
You must appoint a fellow Israelite. He may not be a stranger. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy for himself this body of instruction on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way, and it will ensure that he and his descendants will reign for many generations in Israel. Remember that the Levitical priests, that is, the whole of the tribe of Levi, will receive no allotment of land among the other tribes in Israel. Instead, the priests and Levites will eat from the special gifts given to the Lord, for that is their share. They will have no land of their own among the Israelites. The Lord himself is their special possession, just as he promised them. These are the parts the priests may claim as their share from the cattle, sheep, and goats that the people bring as offerings, the shoulder, the cheeks, and the stomach. You must also give to the priests the first share of the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and the wool at shearing time. For the Lord your God chose the tribe of Levi out of all your tribes to minister in the Lord's name forever. Suppose a Levite chooses to move from his town in Israel, wherever he is living, to the place the Lord chooses for worship. He may minister there in the name of the Lord his God, just like all his fellow Levites who are serving the Lord there. He may eat his share of the sacrifices and offerings, even if he also receives support from his family. Ezra 8.21-9.15 And there, by the Ahava Canal, I, Ezra, gave orders for all of us to fast and humble ourselves before our God. We prayed that He would give us a safe journey and protect us, our children, and our goods as we traveled. For I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to accompany us and protect us from enemies along the way. After all, we had told the king our God's hand of protection is on all who worship him. But his fierce anger rages against those who abandon him. So we fasted and earnestly prayed that our God would take care of us, and he heard our prayer.
I appointed twelve leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten other priests, to be in charge of transporting the silver, the gold, the gold bowls, and the other items that the king, his council, his officials, and all the people of Israel had presented for the temple of God. I weighed the treasure as I gave it to them and found the totals to be as follows. 24 tons of silver, 7,500 pounds of silver articles, 7,500 pounds of gold, 20 gold bowls equal in value to 1,000 gold coins, two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. And I said to these priests, You and these treasures have been set apart as holy to the Lord. This silver and gold is a voluntary offering to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. Guard these treasures well until you present them to the leading priests, the Levites, and the leaders of Israel, who will weigh them at the storerooms of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. So the priests and the Levites accepted the task of transporting these treasures of silver and gold to the temple of our God in Jerusalem. We broke camp at the Ahava Canal on April 19th and started off to Jerusalem, and the gracious hand of our God protected us and saved us from the enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived safely in Jerusalem, where we rested for three days. On the fourth day after our arrival, the silver, gold, and other valuables were weighed at the temple of our God and entrusted to Merimoth, son of Uriah the priest, and to Eleazar, son of Phinehas, along with Jezebad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Benui, both of whom were Levites. Everything was accounted for by number and weight, and the total weight was officially recorded. Then the exiles who had come out of captivity sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel. They presented twelve bulls for all the people of Israel, as well as ninety-six rams and seventy-seven male lambs. They also offered twelve male goats as a sin offering. All this was given as a burnt offering to the Lord. The king's decrees were delivered to his highest officers and the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, who then cooperated by supporting the people and the temple of God. When these things had been done, the Jewish leaders came to me and said, Many of the people of Israel, and even some of the priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the other peoples living in the land. They have taken up the detestable practices of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. For the men of Israel have married women from these people, and have taken them as wives for their sons. So the holy race has become polluted by these mixed marriages. Worse yet, the leaders and officials have led the way in this outrage. When I heard this, I tore my cloak and my shirt, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down, utterly shocked. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel came and sat with me because of this outrage committed by the returned exiles. 
And I sat there utterly appalled until the time of the evening sacrifice. At the time of the sacrifice, I stood up from where I had sat in mourning with my clothes torn. I fell to my knees and lifted my hands to the Lord, my God. I prayed. O my God, I am utterly ashamed. I blush to lift up my face to you, for our sins are piled higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, we have been steeped in sin. That is why we and our kings and our priests have been at the mercy of the pagan kings of the land. We have been killed, captured, robbed, and disgraced, just as we are today. But now we have been given a brief moment of grace, for the Lord our God has allowed a few of us to survive as a remnant. He has given us security in this holy place. Our God has brightened our eyes and granted us some relief from our slavery. For we were slaves, but in His unfailing love our God did not abandon us in our slavery. Instead, he caused the kings of Persia to treat us favorably. He revived us so we could rebuild the temple of our God and repair its ruins. He has given us a protective wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what can we say after all of this? For once again we have abandoned your commands. Your servants, the prophets, warned us when they said, The land you are entering to possess is totally defiled by the detestable practices of the people living there. From one end to the other, the land is filled with corruption. Don't let your daughters marry their sons. Don't take their daughters as wives for your sons. Don't ever promote the peace and prosperity of those nations. If you follow these instructions, you will be strong and will enjoy the good things the land produces, and you will leave this prosperity to your children forever. Now we are being punished because of our wickedness and our great guilt. But we have actually been punished far less than we deserve, for you, our God, have allowed some of us to survive as a remnant. But even so, We are again breaking your commands and intermarrying with people who do these detestable things. Won't your anger be enough to destroy us so that even this little remnant no longer survives? O Lord, God of Israel, you are just. We come before you in our guilt as nothing but an escaped remnant, though in such a condition none of us can stand in your presence. First Corinthians 5, 1-13 I, Paul, can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning and sorrow and shame and... You should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I am not with you in person, I am with you in the spirit. And 
as though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man in the name of Yeshua. You must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Yeshua. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan, so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So, let us celebrate the festival not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. When I wrote to you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin, or are greedy, or cheat people, or worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer, yet indulges in sexual sin, or is greedy, or worships idols, or is abusive, or is a drunkard, or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. O Lord, I have come to you for protection. Don't let me be disgraced. Save me, for you do what is right. Turn your ear to listen to me. Rescue me quickly. Be my rock of protection, a fortress where I will be safe. You are my rock and my fortress. For the honor of your name, lead me out of this danger. Pull me from the trap my enemies set for me, for I find protection in you alone. I entrust my spirit into your hand. Rescue me, Lord, for you are a faithful God. I hate those who worship worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your unfailing love, for you have seen my troubles, and you care about the anguish of my soul. You have not handed me over to my enemies, but have set me in a safe place. Proverbs 21, 1 and 2 The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever He pleases. People may be right in their own eyes, but the Lord examines their heart. I'd like to speak to you today from our Torah portion from Deuteronomy chapter 17, and then we're going to jump into Ezra 8 and 9. And I want to begin with the section in Deuteronomy that talks about if a case arises in a local court that is too hard for you to decide whether someone is guilty of murder or manslaughter or a difficult lawsuit or whatever, then they are instructed to present these cases 
to the Levitical priests or the judge on duty at that time, and they will hear the case and declare the verdict. And then they are told you must carry out the verdict that they announce and the sentence they prescribe at the place the Lord chooses, and you must do exactly what they say. After they have interpreted the law, that is the Torah, and declared their verdict, the sentence they impose must be fully executed. Do not modify it in any way. Now, our reading for the entire week, the Torah portion reading is called Shaftim, which means judges. And this really is the heart of that Torah reading for the week. It's talking about judging uh, matters that go before the court system. And what we see as a principle here is that when that a matter would be brought to a Levitical priest and they would decide based upon the Torah. The Torah was the basis and the foundation for all case law. And that was how decisions were made, is they would compare it to the plumb line of truth from the Word of God. So, just Historically, when the United States of America was first founded as a nation and the three legs of government were founded, the judicial branch, the courts, the legislative branch, the Congress, where they make laws, and the judicial branch is where they interpret laws, and then finally the executive branch, that is the White House, the president, where law bills are signed into law where basically the law is executed and implemented and administered these three legs of government that comes from the bible that yeshua is the lawgiver he's our judge and he's our priest and so initially when the supreme court was first founded but the first 50 or 100 years or so, almost every single case that ever went to the Supreme Court, when they would make a decision, the justices would cite scripture to back up their decisions. So whenever a decision is made, they write opinions. They write, well, this is how I came to my decision. And there's this case law and that case law and this example and that example. And they cite references back to previous cases. Well, the Supreme Court justices would cite scripture. And we can see here in this reading from Deuteronomy that the cases of court were decided by the priests because they knew the Torah and they were able to interpret the Torah and then declare a proper verdict or sentence. So... Right now, however, we don't really have any justice in the land. We have a legal system, but we do not have a justice system. And just a quick example, about eight or nine months ago, when there was a battle going on about who was going to be the president of the United States, Texas came forward and wanted to bring their case to the Supreme Court and have evidence be heard that there had been tampering in the election, that the election results were skewed, that they had been falsified, and they had evidence. And they brought this all the way to the Supreme Court. They were also saying that because other states, such as Georgia and Pennsylvania uh, and Arizona, had 
allowed this election tampering to go on, that this was directly impacting those states where they'd had a truthful election. And so they brought it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court would not even hear the matter. They wouldn't even look at the case or look at the evidence. So there was tremendous injustice that went on, and there was no recourse whatsoever. Continuing on in this same chapter, here are the instructions for the king. A king, the king of Israel. Verse 18, Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. When he sits on the throne as king, he must copy, he, the king, must copy for himself this body of instruction, that is the Torah, on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. He must always keep that copy with him and read it daily as long as he lives. Why? Here's why. That way he will learn to fear the Lord his God, Yahweh his Elohim, by obeying all the terms of these instructions and decrees. In other words, if he wants to be a really good king, he needs to know the Torah so that he can operate, implement, and administrate properly following the guidelines of the Torah. And in doing this, it keeps him. Let's read verse 20. This regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud and acting as if he is above his fellow citizens. It will also prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. You know, when you think about it, there's a verse in Psalm 119 that says that your commands are my highway. They are my pathway and I run. I run in the pathway of your commands. And when you drive a car, whether you're on a country road or a residential neighborhood or an eight-lane super freeway, you stay in your lane. And if you're going to change lanes, you use your turn signal to, and you look to make sure it's safe to get into a different lane. But following the Torah is like walking or uh, running in your lane and knowing where the lines are. And so um, this verse is saying it will prevent him from turning away from these commands in the smallest way. In other words, leaving your lane and driving over a cliff. And so also it says, you know, regular reading will prevent him from becoming proud. How so? Because the word is like a mirror. And the mirror shows us our sin. It shows us, it reveals the thoughts and the intent of our heart. We can't hide from the Lord and from his word. His word is like a, a sword that pierces. It cuts between bone and marrow and between soul and spirit. And it shows and reveals the thoughts and the intent of the heart. And so when we read, it convicts us of our sin. And then we have an opportunity to repent. So I just thought it was really uh, something to point out that it's a very good practice that the king, even the king was instructed to do regular reading and in the word, in the Torah, and even to write down his own copy so that he would stay within 
the lines. Stay in his lane, rule and reign with wisdom, and execute and implement the principles of the Torah. Now I want to jump into Ezra, chapters 8 and 9. And in Ezra chapter 8, verse 31, it is written, We set up for Jerusalem from the Ahava River on the twelfth of the first month. We enjoyed the care of our God who saved us from enemy ambush on the journey. I want to just point out, when did they leave? They left on the twelfth of the first month. Now, the first month on the biblical calendar is usually around March or April. It's the month of Passover, Aviv. And that is when time was defined for them. The new calendar was defined for them. When the Hebrews who were slaves in Egypt left Egypt, crossed through the Red Sea, and then came over into the wilderness, um, God began to speak to them and show them, this month that you're leaving is the first month of your year. This is Aviv. This is the first month. And so it is no accident or coincidence that when Ezra and the exiles left, they left on the 12th day of the first month, about the same time that the Hebrews left Egypt. So in fact, it was like a reenactment of the original Exodus. Um, uh, a repeat. Okay. So a lot of times you can look at scripture. It's like a spiral staircase and an event is historically, it, it is recorded for us historically that it happened, but often that event is also a prophecy that the event of the Exodus, the very first Exodus is also a prophecy to the final generation that there will be another Exodus coming. Okay, and so when you walk up a spiral staircase at the bottom uh, rail, you have an event. And then you walk up one hundred a 360-degree turn to the exact same spot, but now you're up one level and you can look down. And then that same event happens, okay? And then you walk up another 360-degree turn to the third level up. And you can look down and you can see, oh, that happened back then, but now this is happening again. And so it's the events that happened to our forefathers are prophecies to the final generation. That they indeed literally happened historically, but that they will happen again. It's a prophecy, a blueprint, a prophetic blueprint. So this return to the land in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, was a repeat. It was um, another exodus, a re another return to the land. And it's also another foreshadowing, another remezhent of a final exodus to come of all the exiles who are now living in the diaspora. Okay, so the Israel Bible commentary to that verse, verse 31 reads as follows. For the people of Israel, the past and present fuse together to create the most extraordinary future. Though Ezra's action, through Ezra's actions, it is clear that a carefully choreographed event was planned and designed to reflect the earlier exodus from Egypt. Just as the Jews left Egypt in the first month, the Hebrew month of Nisan, and crossed the Sea of Reeds, 
Ezra's exodus departed from a river in the first month. Certainly the symbolism of recreating such a formative occurrence wasn't lost on the members of the entourage, giving them great courage and hope. In modern times, almost the entire Iraq-Babylon Jewish community immigrated to Israel in the early 1950s, essentially ending a continual presence there which had lasted for over 2,800 years. This modern-day miracle was aptly named Operation Ezra and Nehemiah. Now I want to continue on in chapter 9, verse 8. And that verse reads as follows. But now for a short time, while there has been a reprieve from Hashem our God, who has granted us a surviving remnant and given us a stake in his holy place, our God has restored the luster to our eyes and furnished us with a little sustenance in our bondage. And the Israel Bible commentary to this verse reads as follows. In his admonition of the people who have returned to the land of Israel only to abandon the Lord and intermarry with local women, Ezra praises God for providing them a reprieve from the years of exile and persecution. He thanks Hashem for causing the king of Persia to look favorably upon his people and for the remnant of the nation that survived. However, even though Cyrus had granted permission to those who survived the destruction and exile, the surviving remnant to return home and reconstruct the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, a mere 42,360 people heeded the initial call to return and rebuild. In just a short time, the Jews had become accustomed to living in exile, and had embraced its lifestyle. As Rabbi Yehuda Halevi writes in his work, the Kuzari, in reality, however, only a small portion returned. The majority remained in Babel, willfully accepting the exile, as they did not wish to leave their homes and businesses. This is no less true in our own day and age. Jews have become very comfortable living in the diaspora, yet they must take heed of Ezra's stirring words to recognize the kindness that Hashem has done for his people and return with their families to Eretz Israel. So, as we read through Ezra and we look at this return of the exiles to the land, and only a small remnant returned, most stayed behind in Babylon. Again, this is a prophetic blueprint of a future time of another exodus, that there's going to be one more final greater exodus to come, and it's going to include both the Jews and the non-Jews, the non-Jewish part of the family of Israel, the ten tribes of the north, the northern kingdom, who never ever returned to the land. In other words, those of us, the people of faith, who believe in the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and who also know the Son, Yeshua, that this exodus will include us. And um, what we see going on here in the book of Ezra is a blueprint. It's a uh, prophecy. It's a warning that when this exodus of the future happens, we are not to get involved 
with intermarrying and intermingling with non-believers, with atheists, with heathens, with people who practice witchcraft and, and who hate God. We are not to intermingle, but we are to be set apart. We are to be pure. We are to be holy. We are to follow the Torah with all of our heart by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and learn from the lesson of the mistake that these exiles made. We've got to get Egypt and Babylon out of our heart. We've grown way too comfortable in our Egypt and in our Babylon where we live. And sometimes I think the Lord is purging his people. He's taking us out of our comfort zone. Perhaps he's allowed this global pandemic to occur to make us very, very, very uncomfortable so that we will be willing to leave when it's time to go. There are thousands of people in France protesting in the streets because of the tyranny, the medical tyranny that's being imposed upon the people, that vaccinations are being forced, they're being imposed, Uh, There's no choice in the matter. And if you don't get vaccinated, well, you just lose everything. You can't work. You can't go to school. You can't get on a bus. You can't get on a plane. You can't do anything. You're just basically a prisoner in your own home. The medical tyranny that is being imposed in many nations, um, and some are further along in that tyranny than others, um, this makes it very, very uncomfortable. So... If the Lord wants to transplant us, we have to be willing to go when he says it's time to go. Amen. Okay, that's all I have for today, and we will see you tomorrow. Shalom. Vish Mareka Yaya Adonai Anavilaka Vikuneka Yisa Adonai The Aaronic Blessing from Numbers Chapter 6, 24-24 Adonai bless you and keep you. Adonai make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Adonai lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.